All right? Matthew 19, verse 1 through 12, if you will. The message is entitled Marriage and Divorce. The tragic condition of um, American society regarding marriage and divorce has become a way of life, and what was the norm at one time, marriage life, now has become a thing of the past. There are many factors that are responsible for our decaying and unstable society, but the number one factor has to be the epidemic of divorce itself, one for one. <laughs> the tendency to be lenient on the subject of marriage and divorce from the pulpit today is due to the fact that much of the church is married and divorced and they are in fear of offending people. For even in the church, there are people who have been married once, twice, even three times after they've become Christians. That's not to be. The standard for our lives is the scriptures, not the standard of society or the culture, not your pastor with the scriptures. Listen to a 1986 Ladies Home Journal report. Uh, 350,000 readers revealed that 83.4% of unfaithful wives divorce. This is 1986. The increasing uh, prevalence of divorce in working women have turned childcare into a major growth industry. Here again, we can see the shift in people's priorities in the 60s and earlier. The dominant goal in life, for the most part, was to raise healthy, happy, and well-adjusted children. Today, the goal of most parents, men and female, is to be personally fulfilled in all their walks of life. Everybody wants time out. Everybody wants their space. When I grew up, time out was when you woke up after they knocked you out. Okay? Um, this is 32 years ago. George Barna wrote, the frog in the kettle, he says, giving the attitude towards marriage and sex and children in the 90s, he says the following. He said, the traditional family is dead and we have become a nation of friendless adults. Marriage is an outdated institution. The average American family in the 1990s was consisted of married couple with one child in which both parents were employed. At least one of the parents were likely to have been divorced or would be divorced. There were also a growing trend towards um, partners having children without being married. That's, that's just the norm today. In 1990, about one of every 15 children were born out of wedlock. Half of all adults under the age of 30 lived with someone before they got married, and 60% of recently married adults in that time in the 90s um, had lived with them, that person, before they got married. 60% of recently married adults stated that they had uh, done exactly that, and unmarried people living together quadrupled from 1970 to 1990. The Bureau consensus, or the Census of Bureau, um, says that those who live together have a higher rate of divorce. So much for let's try and see if it works. We need to understand, ladies and gentlemen, the seriousness of marriage and that you alone are responsible for the person that you marry. No one else. Singles, pay real close attention. Because when you marry, you marry for life. And you're responsible for the person you marry. Our marriages are more than our, for our own self-interest, for they produce the families that make up our society. The happiness of any marriage, yours and mine, is not 
the primary reason for marriage. But marriage is to produce a healthy and orderly society, honoring the Creator. Happiness is a byproduct, not the goal. And so we want to look at Matthew's section on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. Uh, by the very words of Jesus, the ultimate authority, and makes it very, very clear. And yet pastors make it very confusing, and they compromise on it. Let me um, read our text for us. Matthew 19, 1 through 12. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And a great multitude followed him, and he held, uh, he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came to him, testing him and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced, commits adultery. His disciples said to him, ay, 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 that's in the Greek. Um, <laughs> he says, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better to not marry. Yeah. But he said to them, all cannot accept this saying, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born from, thus from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He who is able to accept it, let him accept it. And so, Seven things I want to talk to you about regarding this section of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. We'll begin with the setting of marriage and divorce in verse 1 and 2. Then the subject of divorce for marriage in verse 3. Then the sound teaching on marriage, verse 4 through 6. Then the selfish demand in marriage, 7 through 8. The single reason for divorce and remarriage, verse 9. And the scary consideration of marriage and divorce in verse 10. And the sane perspective for being single or married, verse 11 and 12. Let's begin with the setting of the marriage and divorce, verse 1 and 2. Notice in verse 1, the teaching for forgiveness reveals man's selfishness by the wicked heart. It says, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished this saying. What is he talking about? The parable is no coincidence that preceded this chapter, the unwilling forgiveness of that um, wicked servant. This is the biggest reason for divorce, unforgiveness. Chapter 18, 21, 35 precedes it. No coincidence. The section is unique of Matthew with the intent of the Holy Spirit regards the evil servant who would not forgive the little owed to him in view of the great amount forgiven to him. That parable is not there for you to criticize this jerk. The parable is there to know that you are the jerk. And I... Wow. 
the phrase after Jesus had finished these things appears after each of the five major discourses. We've seen that. 728, 11.1, 13.53, 19.1 here in 26.1. Natural divisions. Notice verse 1 still. The, um, the move by Jesus towards Jerusalem is given to us that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Jesus moves out from Galilee down towards Judea by crossing over to the east side of the Jordan River to the area known as Perea so as not to go through Samaria as he did with the woman of Samaria in John 4. There, that, on the other side was the king's highway, was travel very much. So Jews would go over, travel the king's highway, come back, shake the dust out of their clothes, remember? Or the Via Maris over in the Mediterranean. Some of you will be in Israel with us uh, next month. Well, we'll see the Via Maris, and we just have to believe that the king's highway is still over there, and they're both used today, by the way. Now, notice in verse 2, the ministry of Jesus to the uh, crowds is resumed now, and he healed them. A uh, great multitude follow him, and he healed them there. Mark tells us that he was also teaching them in Mark 10.1. Because spiritual healing, or even, I mean, sorry, physical healing is worthless if you're not growing in your spiritual life. You must be growing in your spiritual life. That's the priority. Jesus was always with the people, meeting their needs. So the setting of marriage and divorce was Forgiveness, don't miss that. Notice the subject of divorce from marriage comes in verse 3. The religious rulers came to trap Jesus. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him. This is not the first time nor the last time, as you know. As they try to trap Jesus all the time. The motive was to try to uh, find fault with him. Um, to be able to accuse him. The word testing there indicates a malicious intent. The question posed to Jesus regarded divorce and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Underline, it's very specific. Any reason. He's talking to Jews, not Gentiles. Shemaiah, the rabbi taught adultery was the only reason. He is a conservative. A woman could never divorce an Israeli man, except for being impotent, lack of provisions, or leprosy. Or if he was crazy. And he was crazy as a man, he's never going to admit it. <laughs> now notice, the Jews held the highest view of womanhood, but it was still law, because a woman was a possession of a man and a father, and she was never to be taught the law. Wow. Christianity has exalted womanhood above Anything in this world, philosophy, religions, or everything else, wherever the gospel has gone, women are, are, are brought up. They're equal to a man before God, his eyes, but there's different distinct roles in complement, not in competition. Hillel, the liberal, you remember him with the L's, liberal, Hillel. He taught that a man could divorce his wife for any reason if she burned his bagels, if she spoke to a man in public. Today it's called irreconcilable differences. Rabbi Akiba went as far as to say that if he was walking down the street and saw a woman more beautiful than his wife, she would become unclean in his eyes. He could divorce her. You may laugh at it, but it's serious. But it's no more ridiculous than today. All of this demonstrating the selfishness of man's heart and how easy divorce was in the days of Jesus 
Ever since the fall, man seeks personal freedom rather than responsibility, the permissive agenda. We witness the breakdown of morals from the 60s and promoting free love and no right or wrong and destroying innocence and undermining stability and permanence for marriage and society. And I'm only using that gauntlet because that's when I grew up. It happened in the Roaring Twenties. It happened other times, okay? The 70s and 80s and 90s blossomed from these so-called freedom seeds into lifestyles of moral confusion, material bondage, and self-destruction, not valuing marriage and the family. From 2000 to the present, 2018, the multiplicity of sexual partners and the uh, acceptance of homosexuality has increased the spread of STDs. They don't even bother to talk about them. They're epidemic. Nor do they talk about the number of deaths from STDs and AIDS. One man and one woman is always the best formula for true happiness and the greatest safety for your physical health and society. And God declared it from the beginning. The subject of divorce from, from marriage was a liberal interpretation. They loved it. Then comes the sound teaching on marriage, verse 4 through 6. The response of Jesus pointed them back to God's original design and creation. Verse 4, the words of Jesus, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? This was a rebuke to the Jew about their ignorance and arrogance to the scriptures, male and female, different in kind, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. Male and female. Have you ever tried to connect two male jacks on your computer? Two female jacks? You're not going to get no connection. Walk into Apple and ask them what you want to do. It looks at you kind of weird. It's unnatural. The record of Genesis is clear. God created and designed male and female to reproduce according to their kind, Genesis 1.27. Genesis 5.2, we are fallen, so now we produce children just like us, little rotten sinners. Because we're big rotten sinners. Homosexuals and lesbians cannot reproduce a child. So society allows them to adopt and be artificially inseminated by some donor. Society keeps lowering the bar, ladies and gentlemen. Notice the purpose and design of God for male and female. Jesus said was marriage, Versailles, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage is the reason a man leaves his father and mother, the home. The word leave means to separate, to sever former relationship. It doesn't mean you abandon your parents, but there's a severing of authority, a severing of permission. When you're married, you don't call your dad and say, can I come in at two in the morning? It's over. Marriage joins a man to his wife and they become one flesh. Mark that well. One household, a new unit, new intimacy, perpetual, perpetuating society and the oneness of two sexually resulting in children 
two into one. 23 chromosomes, 23 chromosomes. They look like you. They look like her. They, you look across the room, they stand like you, and they talk like you. Oh, my Lord, what's going on? <laughs> what a miracle. And God blesses people with that believer and non-believer. That is why it's called holy matrimony. It's a sacred commitment for life that is not to be treated as something common. I don't think any of you ladies would feed your dog with your grandmother's china that she gave to you. You buy a doggy bowl. Your body is a temple of God, not a toy. One household distinct from the one left. The marriage ceremony is before God and the witnesses declaring that you and I are selecting one person from all others for our devotion and holiness and fidelity till death. And so the witnesses that go to your to your wedding, I know that today they're just taking a parting, but the original intent is they're the first ones to get in your face if you're going to leave your spouse. They're holding you accountable. I made a choice to marry Trudy, for better or for worse, till death do us part. And let me tell you, marriage is tough being two creepy sinners. You don't find out how bad you are until you're married. Then you realize, oh my Lord. But it takes a while to realize it's you. You always want to blame others. One is... So much that within time you begin to be more like each other. Your expressions, your mannerisms. Though you still have individual personalities. I'm not there to make her like me or her like me like her. Now the declared, the declaration of Jesus here was that male and female can never be two after marriage. Listen to his words. Verse 6. So then they are no longer Two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Sex constitutes one flesh, a physical and a spiritual union. Don't, don't, don't confuse this. When you have sex with somebody, you're not only physically bound, you are spiritual. There's a spiritual aspect that's going on. But it doesn't constitute or demand a permanent union before God being single. It is the only sin that is against your own body as a single person. 1 Corinthians 6, 17 and 18. And against God. Marriage is a divine institution that binds you permanently. Which makes you one in the eyes of God. And gives you the privilege of sexual oneness by the vow. You become one at the altar. You celebrate at the honeymoon bed. Not the reverse. You become one at the altar before God and people. Notice what God joins together. No one is to separate. The word join means to glue together, being one. I don't know if they teach woodshop anymore, but we used to laminate foot together. And if you want to separate it, you could do it, but then you have to sand because there's slivers from one to the other. There is no divorce that is clean. It's going to be slivered. I hate when people say, you know, we, you know uh, we, we like each other even more than we did when we were married. You're a liar. Or you're unnatural. One of the two. 
The phrase has joined together means to fasten to one yoke, to be united like two oxen or two donkeys or to plow. You move together. You're individuals, but you complement. You don't compete. You thank God for each other. You realize God is in this, and it's the only way it's going to work. The word separate is used of divorce in the context and means depart or to go and place room between both of you. Marriage is a devotion to be obedient, obeyed and disciplined by dying to self. If you don't die to self, man, God help your wife or husband and your kids and everybody else around you. The saddest thing today is marriages is that not many have a long history together, but rather accumulated years through the number of marriages. When I tell people that I've been married almost 45 years, some congratulate you because they know it's so rare. It's not because of me, it's because of God and Trudy. (laughs) History with one person through the difficult times, the raising of children, being bound together as one, is like no nothing else. It will mold you, it will shape you, it will stretch you, it will just transform you. History that can look back on God's grace in both of your lives through obedience, making marriage work rather than calling it quits. It is one thing to say to each other, let's go see the kids. And another to say, let's go see my kid. Whether we like it or not, there's a difference. Now, having said that, when you're going to marry someone with children, you're marrying them and the children are part of your responsibility. They're underage. You cannot do that. You have to die to self. Everything is clean intellectually. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But then emotionally, you freak out when reality hits. Again, look over the building. There's a concrete or water before you jump off. The second teaching on marriage has never changed. The sound teaching. The sound teaching has never changed. It's the same. Notice, fourthly comes the selfish demand in divorce. Seven and eight. The confrontation of Jesus with the concession in the law is presented. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? The concession is found in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 24, verse 1 through 4. Just jot it down. I'm not going to read it, but I'll walk you through it. You'll understand it. This is the text that they think they're going to trap him with. The concession within the law was a Decent concession, so as to not have society all fractured by all manner of divorce. Israel's a theocracy. Are we clear on that? It recognized the reality of divorce, but it did not condone or make it easy. And that's the thing about 
laws of divorce or whatever. That you have to go through a long process and hopefully every step you're thinking about it and maybe you can change your mind realizing you're making a mistake. The provision was for some uncleanness found in the woman. But it's not specified as to what it is literally. So it was taken liberally, of course. The word is unclean, literally uncleanness. And it means the nakedness of a thing in decency or shameful exposure. The only other place that noun is found appears in keeping the camp clean from excrement. So Yahweh not see it. The uncleanness, Deuteronomy 23, 13 through 14. God said, well, my kid was growing up. He was about four years old. Mom, where did people go to the bathroom? He goes, well, I don't know. Let me look. He shows them there in Deuteronomy. Go out and camp, make a hole, bury it. Because God walks in the camp. Wow, what a delight. This is the only other place it's found for uncleanness of this passage. The passage could not refer. I'm going to kind of repeat myself because it makes important difference here. The passage could not refer to adultery or being a non-virgin, for we already said the penalty was stoning them, right? Leviticus 20, verse 10, and Deuteronomy 22, 13 through 24. So if a man accused his wife of not being a virgin on the honeymoon night, then uh, the uh, elders would gather, the parents would bring out their, uh, the evidence of her virginity, the, the cloths of blood, and they would present them, and then he could never divorce her, and he would be found, I believe they'd give him some beating or something, but, um, and, and he could never divorce her. But if she was found to be a non-virgin, deceiving him, then they would stone her to death. So when people try to interpret this, that that's what it means, it's completely bogus. Because there was no need for divorce. If you were a non-virgin by deception, or if you had committed adultery, they just stoned you to death. That doesn't mean they got you loaded. I mean, you got stoned to death. All right? You didn't get up. The provision was to protect the woman in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, from being abused and not live under an unfavorable condition and to have legal document in her hand for her release from the marriage by two witnesses. Now, he didn't have to tell her anything. He just gave, got two witnesses, right of divorce. Here it is, out of my home. And in that provision there of Deuteronomy was really a warning to the husband to consider well what he was giving up because he could not take her back again in remarriage regardless of what happens. It says there, if she receives a divorce, she goes outside of your home and he, she marries another man and then he dies or puts her away, she can never come back to you. Think, why? Because she didn't commit adultery. You let her lose for an unbiblical reason, but in giving her divorce and she marries another, now you've defiled her yourself. You've caused her to commit adultery. Who's the guilty party? Ay, ay, ay. The man. Wow. Amazing. The provision was to discourage divorce, not to encourage it. Be careful what you let go. You're never going to get it back, he said. Now, the revelation by Jesus for the reason the concession was given to man 
He said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wife, but from the beginning it was not so. The unforgiving servant in the parable, once again, is number one reason for divorce. Hard heart. Evil, desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17, 9, Matthew 15, 18 through 19. The heart of our society and some believers is love for self, not others. It's a very narcissistic society. From the 70s on, all the psychological self-esteem and everything else. The concession was to regulate some control for the soundness of society in Israel. The word permit allowed in hope that having to go through the legal proceedings would cause the man to think through the long-term consequences. We have a weakness. We don't look at the long-term consequences. We only look at the short-term seeming benefits. People today only think of the immediate release and freedom. That's why no-fault divorce in the 70s devastated our nation, offering no protection to the woman and children. But it's all been turned around with this woman liberation. It's not about rights or equality. It's about vengeance. So the male has been emasculated by our educational systems, our political system, and laws. Wow. The allowance of divorce would not become the norm, and marriage would not lose its seriousness in life, and those who were divorced would live with the sense of guilt and shame instead of not being bothered by the breakup of their home. Social guilt and shame is good for certain things. It keeps things in line. I hope you discipline your children at home. If they just throw a ball through the window because they felt like it. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying that you have to live with guilt if you've been divorced, provided it's a biblical divorce. For Christ has made you a new creature. If you were married three, four, five times, a hundred times before you were a Christian, they don't exist. But if you've been divorced after coming to Christ, it better be for adultery, as we'll see, and nothing else, or it's not a legal divorce by God. Nobody wants to touch that from the pulpit. Jesus speaks very clearly. The ideal and original plan designated by God did not include divorce. So Jesus is not agreeing with, with uh, Shemaiah, adultery. Jesus goes a step higher. It was never for, from the beginning. He says, if you're a believer, there should be no divorce. Your BC days, fine. As a believer, there is no divorce. Except for what we're going to see. The beginning pointed to the creation of Adam and Eve, Genesis 2. They were to be one spiritually, sexually, and socially, not two. Completely not competing. The standard of God has not changed. So the selfish demand in divorce is the hardness of the heart. Notice fifth, the single reason for divorce and remarriage. Verse 9. The ultimate authority on marriage and divorce is Jesus. Not your pastor. Not the commentaries. Jesus said, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, 
This is the only reason allowed for divorce, sexual unfaithfulness. Now, he's talking to Jews, so he says only the wife, divorce his wife. Mark, he takes both the woman and the wife because he's talking to Greeks, okay? The word sexual immorality is porneia. Translated fornication has a broader term than just intercourse. It has anything to do, any kind, anything, whether it be petting under the clothes, above the clothes, under the clothes, whatever it is, all of that is pornea. You get the word pornography from it, okay? The context of our text is marriage. Therefore, the meaning has to be adultery. We already eliminated the other two possibilities. They're out of context. The word divorce means to release, to put away and to send away, and is used by Jesus in all of the passages for divorce. Uh, Matthew 5.32, he repeats this here in verse 3, 7, 8, 9, Mark 10, 2, 4, 11, 12, Luke 16, 18. No mistake about it. The word is used of being relieved of one's occupation, permission to leave a country, and a veteran released from his long service. Adultery is a violating of the covenant of companionship in marriage by having sex with one who is not your husband or wife while being married to them. Malachi 2.14, he hates divorce. This is the single reason for biblical divorce, according to the words of Jesus. I say to you, that's it. Paul confirms this in 1 Corinthians 7, 10, and 11. The responsibility of both believers is not to depart if there is no adultery, but to reconcile. Some people try to use that text for Christian separation. There's no such thing. The word is for divorce. And Paul says, do not separate with the intent for divorce. The same word is used by Jesus. Let no one separate, depart. Right here, verse 6. The believing husband or wife is not to divorce, to send away and remarry when there is no sin of adultery. Again, 1 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. There is no provision in the scripture for Christian separation for the context of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and 1 Corinthians is divorce. Is that understood? Paul speaks of another reason. If a believer is married to an unbeliever, and the unbeliever doesn't want to remain with you because you're a Christian, 1 Corinthians 7.15, then God allows you to be released. You marry a woman or a man, whether it's because you were a Christian and you disobeyed and you were unequally yoked and you married them, or you came to Christ after Christ and they did not, either way. If they say, I don't want to be with you, Jesus freak, I'm out of here, I'm divorcing you. They initiate, you're set free. God is more merciful to the unbeliever than the Christian. Are we understood in that? But the believer is never to divorce or to initiate divorce with an unbeliever that they married or are married. If they want to be content to live with them, you be an example in the light and salt. You gave your vows at the altar. God honors the institution of marriage, not just for Christians. He demands it of non-believers also. Once again, some have also attempted to interpret pornea here as Jesus uses it for sex before marriage or being a non-virgin. We've already talked about that. Jesus is speaking to the Jews. We already stated the woman who lied about this or deceived was put to death, right? So it cannot be talking about this. It's a contradiction. But if you take this interpretation and say that I'm wrong, 
If you take this interpretation for the grounds of your divorce, that your uh, husband or wife was not a virgin, whatever it is, then um, you would be relieve, uh, revealing the hardness of your own heart, even as he says here. And that you don't want to honor your commitment to the vows of marriage. You're unwilling to forgive as you have been forgiven for everything. And that your love is not for the other person, but for yourself. And you're really married on a selfish motive and you love for self instead of them. Wow. Pretty embarrassing, isn't it? Also, if the person is a Christian, you would be denying them forgiveness of all their sins as Jesus made them new creatures. But you're willing to receive it for yourself. I wouldn't want to be you. For all the money in the world. Now, you singles, if you are a non-virgin, if you have blown it sexually, it's nobody's business when you date. And Christian dating is kind of weird, okay? Um, you know, because there's only one type of dating that I know. And that's when you're trying to get over on each other. Flesh is flesh. So you better watch what you do, okay? But if you're a non-virgin, then you have the decency and honesty. If you come to that place where you're going to marry this person, you're getting serious that you sit down with each other and have a talk and say, listen... I blew it in the world and that. All right? Be honest with each other. Very, very much so. Um, if you don't, you never know how a person is going to respond after the fact. To share it before the fact is wisdom and protection. To share it after the fact is being unwise and potential destruction. It's just that simple. Not only that, but if the word here means fornication, sex before marriage, then Jesus really didn't answer the question about adultery, right? About marriage and divorce, right? Because you could be engaged with a girl, your parents engage you in that culture at four years old, five years old, and then you entered into the spousal one year before, and you could call it off any time. Right? And if you did call it off, then she would have to get a legal divorce and she would be a divorced virgin. And if you died before the marriage, she would be a divorce, uh, she would be a widow virgin. That we scratch our head, but in that culture it's possible because of the arrangements. You understand? So you need to think it through. Not only that, but your body is not your own, it's God. The sin is against your own body and God, First Corinthians 6. But again, put yourself in the position of that person. You want to be honorable. It's better to know that they don't love you for you, but what they think you are, before than after. Real simple. Just the way it is. Now there's a caution. The guilty party should not just treat the dishonest omission or lie lightly and simply use their Christianity to dispel the issue without any sense of it being sin against their partner and mate and acknowledging and asking forgiveness. Otherwise, we're entitled, right? We're abusing grace. There's a second caution. You need to explain truthfully what is needed to resolve 
the omission or half-lie or whatever it is so that trust can regain in the marriage and you can move forward. Do not cover a lie with another lie. That's double stupidity. Okay? An unbiblical divorce leads to adultery. So simple. Now, verse 9 still, the declaration by Jesus that guilty party, the guilty party cannot remarry. Listen. And marries another, commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And I say to you, whoever divorces wife, except for sexual immorality, remember? If there is no adultery violating the covenant between the husband and wife, and they divorce, they both will commit adultery. If they remarry, they are to reconcile. If you disobey and not staying together, and you separate, being married... You only have one option, reconciliation or live the way you are. But you cannot divorce. Wow. The one initiating the divorce causes the innocent party to commit adultery. Understand that clearly. And the one who marries her or him commits adultery. Matthew 5.32. Jesus is saying he does not recognize the civil divorce paper between believers if there has not been adultery. But they, in fact, commit adultery by remarrying. Is that clear? You're still married. Even though you separate. You're not free to date. And you're definitely not free to remarry. First Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. If the innocent party wants to exercise their right to divorce due to adultery, they can. You have the scriptural allowance. But if you choose to forgive and there's a repentance and you want to take that option, I commend you. And that's always better. And we've seen much of that in the body. That's great. But let me caution you. If you say to your mate, yes, I forgive you. One thousand of a second later, you cannot renege. It says it never happened. You've forgiven them. You've got to wait for another adulterous relationship. Is that clear? So, don't make it emotional. You make sure you've prayed about it and you really believe and take your time. Make sure that person's repentant and there's no hurry in remarrying or remaining married. Okay? Adultery. The innocent party is not commanded to divorce. They have the option and allowance to divorce. Now, the guilty party who commits adultery, if they remarry, commits adultery, and the person who marries them also. Here is the potential problem, okay? The individual may divorce, okay? He disobeys the Christian, divorces, and he marries another. He says, hey, you know, I'll marry my girlfriend, my boyfriend, and then, you know, afterwards I'll repent and I'll be fine. You say, that's not fair. What do you want me to do about it? If the woman or man is genuinely repentant after the divorce and after a remarriage, is God going to forgive them? Yes. The only thing is, I don't know if it's real. But you have to live with the baggage. You have to live with the fact that you as a Christian divorced your previous husband and wife unbiblically. And you cannot hide it when a pastor or elders would ask you to serve in the church while you're divorced came forth. Are we clear on that? 
requirements, Timothy and Titus. All right? Genuine repentance does forgive. But you make the choice. No one else. There is also an allowance to remarry when your husband or wife die, but only in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7.39 and 1 Timothy 5.14. Okay? So, if I died, Trudy could remarry. But she better not. <laughs> no. I'm only kidding. But she can. But only, only in the Lord. Okay? Only in the Lord. I'll be with the Lord. It won't matter. <laughs> the prohibition of Deuteronomy that a wife could not go back to her first husband if he released her does not apply here. Okay? We're not a theocracy as Israel and we're under grace. But you have to suffer the consequence and you have to live with the consequence. Am I clear on that? If you're an unbeliever, all your divorces are forgiven, brand new. If you're a believer, though you may be forgiven, and we've known people. There was a couple here 25 years later. I married them again. They're still together. Greatest thing they ever did. Okay? There's others I've married also, again. The single reason for divorce and remarriage is adultery. Now, the scary consideration of marriage and divorce, verse 10. His disciples said to him, If such is the case, the man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Yeah! If you're single, look at that mug. You're going to roll over in bed, and that's what you're going to see every morning for the rest of your life. Okay? And she may be beautiful right now, but maybe not later. And he may be a jock right now, and later on he may be just a middle drawer hanging out. Okay? (laughs) The disciples of Jesus were in agreement with who? Hallel. They were liberals, the dirty dozen. They were shocked at what Jesus says. They were of the mind of every cause. They were liberal in their thinking. The disciples considered that if that was the only reason for divorce, adultery, maybe it's better not to marry. Good, good thought. The problem with that is that not all have the gift of celibacy that Paul speaks about in 1 Corinthians 7, 17, and 20, and what Jesus is going to uh, declare here. The average person is created for marriage and family and will have to uh, satisfy their sexual contentment within that relationship. The majority of people are created that way. There are some people that are not, and he's going to mention them, but they are the exception. You're married till death do you part. So the scary consideration of marriage and divorce is that marriage is for life. Okay? Seventh and last, look at 11 through 12. The same perspective for being single or married. The gift that makes singleness possible is declared by Jesus. But he who said to them, uh, he said to them, all cannot accept this, uh, but only those to whom it is given. God distributes each man a gift, 1 Corinthians 7, 17 through 24, whether you have the gift of celibacy to live with, a, uh, to see women, if you're a man that doesn't bother you, or, or vice versa, and you're content. You have no need. The word given it means God is the giver of this gift. 
And God declares, uh, no one's superior to another. We're all made of the same stuff. But if he gives you the gift, he distributes it severally as he will for your calling in 1 Corinthians 7, 25 through 40. Okay? Now, the various types of singleness are stated by Jesus. To clarify this, verse 12. Those individuals born with a physical inability for sexual intercourse is for there are eunuchs who are born thus from their mother's womb. Some physical abnormality, some happens at birth or after the fact or whatever. Then there are those men who were castrated by men to ensure the protection of their harem. Now, we don't have harems today, but I'm sure in Saudi Arabia still, whatever. But they were to protect the harem, not to violate the harem. And there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men. Daniel possibly was a eunuch. The head eunuch trained Daniel and his friends. It's very possible they castrated Daniel and his friends, okay? And then those individuals voluntarily denying themselves marriage for the service of God by the gift. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake, be it for rigor or danger or not wanting to impose that hardship on the maid. They deny themselves. The person alone can make this decision. He was able to accept it. Let him accept it. Sexual passions do not go away. If you're married, young people, if you get married just because you're lusting, whoa, it will magnify later if that isn't the person God has for you. All right? Be real careful of that. When you put oil on fire, it ignites. It doesn't quench it. Now, marriage is binding, not by sex prior to marriage, but God's divine institution of marriage. Marriage can only be dissolved by adultery. Marriage is not superior to singleness, only different in calling. Marriage is binding for life until death. Wow. The same perspective for being single or married is to know your call. Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Though I don't like to quote him a lot because he's a neo-orthodox of the German school of thought of liberalism that has destroyed our theology and pulpits. But he had some good stuff. Let me share with you a letter he wrote while sitting in a Nazi prison cell for the wedding ceremony of his niece who was about to be married. Listen carefully. In it he said, quote, Marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power. For it is God's holy ordinance through which he will perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love, you see only your own two selves in the world. But in marriage, you are aligned in the chain of the generations, which God caused to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your happiness. But in marriage, you are placed in a post of responsibility towards the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It is a status. It is an office. Excellent. 
excellent. I pray that you understand what the Bible teaches about marriage, divorce, and remarriage from the Christian perspective. And that you don't take the easy way out as so many pastors allow today. You will suffer the consequences, not them. The setting of marriage and divorce is forgiveness or the lack thereof. The subject of divorce was the liberal interpretation. The sound teaching on marriage has never changed. The selfish demand in divorce is the hardness of the heart. The single reason for divorce and remarriage is adultery. The scary consideration of marriage and divorce is that marriage is for life. And the sane perspective for being single or married is to know your call. Only you know. No one else. And so I try to be as honest and as practical as I can with you because I'm just like you. Jesus spoke very, very clear. The scriptures are very, very clear. There is no confusion. I pray you obey God. You will receive the blessing of God. Lord, we praise you. We thank you for your grace and love, your goodness. Deal with our hearts and those who are listening uh, somewhere around the world, Lord, and the internet also. And the Lord, if someone doesn't know you, that they will call on your name. You call us to marry you and you forgive us of everything. And you give us a white gown that we might be your bride, Lord. We thank you. And so, Lord, we pray right now for all those that have been listening. If you're here, you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior somewhere in the world out there or in the internet. God loves you. He died for you. He wants to forgive you of your sin and make a new creation of you. Brand new. It's a prayer of repentance. That's what he requires. If this is your desire by the move of the Spirit, if you believe what has been revealed to you by God, then this is your prayer. And he's going to forgive you right now. Make you a son or daughter. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.